This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yes. Carlson, Welcome everybody to a bonus episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. Brian, introduce yourself, and then I'll tell people what's going on. Well, my name is Brian Com, but Elon, I want to tell people what's going on. Can I tell people what's going on? <laughs> All right, if you must. Well, maybe we can share the responsibilities of that this week, but I just wanted to not bury the lead this week. We are starting a fantasy hockey pool. The Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey League is on its way. The planning is going strong. We've already started taking signups for the league. If you would like to compete in a fantasy hockey league this season with Elon, myself, and all the other fantasy crazy people who are our patrons, all you need to do, sign up to be a patron, head over to the Facebook group, There's a sign-up form on the right-hand sidebar. Join our hockey pool. Elon and I spent last episode and are going to spend more of this episode designing the best fantasy hockey league that we can imagine. The best balance of fun. The best balance of competitiveness. And it's going to end up in this wonderful, beautiful fantasy league in which we will all have years and years of fun in. So come along. It's over on the Facebook patron group. And get in on it. What are you waiting for? Wow, Brian, shot right out of a cannon. I thought you were just going to say what we were going to talk about this week, but I guess you had a, a meeting with some sort of life coach telling you you need to sell yourself, and, and you sure have, so good job there. It saves me the job at the end of the show. I sold out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. People, come on, join our pool. It's going to be amazing. But okay, aside from that, basically last week we did a whole episode, like Brian said, talking about fantasy hockey pool design and all the different things you have to think about when designing your pool. And we gave some of our thoughts of what we think is better or worse. And a lot of these things, it's not necessarily better or worse. It depends what you're looking for in your pool. Then after the show ended, for the rest of the week, Brian and I were messaging each other saying, oh, we forgot to talk about this. Oh, no, we didn't talk about this. So we decided, why not? Come on, we'll do an extra bonus episode. We weren't planning on doing a show this week, but we couldn't leave you guys with an incomplete list of decisions for fantasy hockey. So here we are once again. And I think the place where we need to start is talking about rosters. Because a big part of fantasy hockey, which we didn't mention at all last week, is that with simple pools, you just have your list of players and they all contribute. But 
more intense and fun and standard, like Yahoo and ESPN at least, fantasy hockey pools, you have this roster of, let's say, a certain number of centers, certain number of defense, certain number of goalies, and that's fewer than the number of players on your team total. So on a given night, you have to decide who fits into where. Also, you can't just draft like any players you want because you only have so many roster spots available. So let's get into it. Brian, what would you say are the considerations when determining what the roster setup should be for your hockey pool? Well, there are two schools of roster composition, and the first is sort of like a free-for-all. So say you have 15 roster spots, set aside a couple for goalies if you want, and then the rest are to be filled with skaters. And that's as specific as it gets. It's skaters, period. It can be a forward, left winger, center, right wing, or defenseman. Doesn't matter as long as you have an NHL skater or an AHL skater if you choose to go that route for whatever reason in that spot you're good. And that sort of format gives you a lot of flexibility. You're not drafting by position. You're usually just drafting and building your team by finding the best skater available. The other way to do it is to have designated positions for your skater. So you'll have, say, a couple centers, a couple left wing, a couple right wing, and a bunch of defensemen that make up your roster. And those are the guys that you need to fill out. So if you stack your roster with left wingers, but you only have two roster slots for them, then you're just going to be sitting a whole bunch of left wingers on your bench every game and have empty spots in your center and right wing positions. So these are the two things you want to consider. You want to consider, well, do you want it to just be any player that you get? It doesn't matter. You can just draft the guy you want, regardless of what position they play. Or... Would you like to have a little bit more of a deliberate roster composition where you're really building it like an NHL team and you can't just have, you know, 11 centers on your roster instead? You're going to want guys who are left wing, right wing. Dual eligibility also ups people's value in this sort of league. Yeah, we were saying last week that with a lot of these decisions, there's kind of a trade-off between gamesmanship and maybe fun. But here, I feel like as long as you have people who are into having a bit more complex of a league, I think... You get both with this type of setup of having the different roster spots. It's sort of very straightforward to do it with just, you know, fill your roster with whatever you want. I think it's a lot of fun when you go forwards and defense and it adds this whole new dimension. Like defensemen become more valuable. Like if you don't include specific defensemen roster spots and let's say your league is a points only league or just offense categories and your defensemen are going to be a lot less valuable because 40 points for a defenseman is really great and 40 points for a forward is like that guy's not even fantasy relevant he's not even half point per game but when you introduce defense roster spots then all of a sudden you think about oh what's the scarcity how rare is it to find a defenseman who give me 40 points versus having to use this spot for someone who's only going to give me like 20 points I really enjoy doing that and then you get into the whole thing of the different forwards which could get very frustrating see Matthew Perot last year who didn't get left-wing eligibility on Yahoo until like three quarters of the way through the season even though he had been playing there for a while but it definitely leads to a lot more thinking and like you said Brian it's a lot more like an actual NHL roster yeah and as per your point about defensemen it also deepens the player pool so that you're going to be drafting and looking at guys that you probably wouldn't have considered before you know generally the 50th best center is better than like the 45th best left winger and definitely better than like you know the 10th ranked defenseman so you're going to have to go deeper by positioning you know you'll get a better sense of who plays where in the league and what is the best value pick for you because it also adds strategy if there's like 20 similar centers available at the top of that list but there's only one or two left wingers at the top of their list well then it becomes clear which one you're going to want to draft 
Okay, so then once you've decided that you want to have these different roster positions, the other big question is, do you want to just draft your whole team and you have to fill out each position? Or do you want to leave some bench spots? And that's where Fantasy Hockey gets really intriguing when you have more players on your roster than can play on a given night. And then you have to decide which players to play if it's like a busy Saturday and all your players are playing. Also, then you get into some of these interesting things like players who play on off days become more valuable on a given week because you'll be able to play them on their days and not have to waste them by sitting them on the busier days. Oh, that gets really fun. So Brian, are you pro bench spot? You must be. The question more maybe is, what do you think is the right number of bench spots to have? Well, I think the sweet spot that you want to aim for is that you want to have enough bench spots so that there's some flexibility on your roster. So say if you have an injury or two, you have enough guys already on your team to replace that person with, or just cycle in and out as hot streaks come and go. But you also don't want to have so many that it doesn't even matter who's on your bench because they never get into your lineup anyway. If you're just stacked with like, you know, a disproportionate amount of your roster on your bench... Well, then you're not going to use a bunch of them most of the year realistically, and it also makes the free agent pool shallower and less interesting to follow. I like it when everybody has some skin in the game, and when you make a drop from a player that's on your bench, that it's still something that could potentially hurt you, but it's not something that's going to break you. Right, yeah, I hear you. And as far as specific numbers go, that depends on, you know, how you set up the rest of your roster, and we'll get to that in a second, but I definitely agree with you. If you've set up your league such that you have some players on your bench that literally never play then clearly you have too many bench spots. It should be that on a busy Saturday, not everyone's going to get in, but in a given week, each player is going to at least play like once or twice for your fantasy team. And it also cuts you a bit of slack. If you have a full roster and no bench spots, then whatever guy, you know, you want to switch out, he's just gone. I would rather be able to like sort of just put him on the side for a little bit while holding on to him pick up somebody else in the meantime, you know, drop somebody lower on my roster and then hope he comes around. And if not, then still drop him. But I like having that little bit of rope to work with when a player does go cold. Okay, and Brian, also I'm curious to get your thoughts on goalie spots on a roster. So unlike other positions, there's very few goalies in the NHL that are playing, right? There's 30 teams. So theoretically, you could say 30 starting goalies. There's obviously some tandem. So maybe you could get to like 45 goalies that play somewhat decently. And then maybe once you get much more than that, you're counting the number of goalies who play more than like two or three games in an entire season. How many goalie roster spots do you think should be in a standard pool? Well, that's going to depend on the size of the league. I generally like to think that maybe 40 goalies roughly should be on people's rosters. So, you know, figure out how many people are in your league and how many goalies that means. Of course, if it's a small league, you know, you're going to have less and there's going to be a lot more starters available. But in a good, you know, deep competitive league... I think every team's starter should be taken and all the 1Bs should also generally be off the market with a few backups cycling back and forth between free agency. In the leagues I've been in, two goalie roster spots seems to be good. Elon, we had a situation where we were in sort of a shallow league last year and we had three goalies who were always playing and we could never play both of them even with two roster spots. So I can't imagine having fewer than that unless, you know, you really want to pick your horse and ride them the entire season. Yeah, there's a guy in our Facebook group that was saying that in his league, they only had one goalie roster spot active a night. And to me, that just seems so wild because what's the point of really having a goalies in free agency? Like once you've got, you know, your Pekka Rene or your Carey Price, 
maybe you want to have some guy for his off days, but it really changes the whole value of goalies. Because generally in fantasy hockey, I find goalies are so rare. Like whenever there's a goalie injury, a team starter goes down and all of a sudden their backup is going to be thrust in. Think of like Cam Talbot last year. That guy becomes like the most important thing to talk about in fantasy hockey. That always leads off our podcasts. Well, just think of Andre Vasilevsky last year, right? He was the third stringer to start the year. And when Nabokov retired and then Bishop got injured, so Vasilevsky was in the spotlight. And a lot of people just had him on their rosters just in case. So, you know, that could be a little intense or extreme because it often ends up in a race to the free agent pool. Whoever can, you know, get internet access first to make the ad for the, you know, the third stringer who might get the promotion. But I do like it when you do have to consider the entire goalie landscape and you're not just going with one guy. I've been in leagues where people just cycle their goalies over and over again, you know, between three starting goalies on, you know, playoff worthy teams. I prefer where you have to pick two, you got to live and die by them. And then the third one is somebody you can sort of, you know, you've got some wiggle room with over the course of the season. Okay, and then another key thing you have to consider when setting up your roster composition is how many IR spots do you want to put in? So you were mentioning before, Brian, that it's nice to have some bench spots if a player gets injured. That's more for like a day injury. It's also nice to have these IR spots where basically if the player gets put in the IR in the NHL, you could put them on your IR and then pick up another player from free agency without having to drop anyone. And then when the guy gets back to health and gets back to playing, then to bring him back into your roster, you have to drop someone to make everything even. Most fantasy hockey platforms give you the option of how many IR spots you want to have in your league what do you think is a good number brian like what's the cost of having too few or too many and then where do you like to land i'm a generous ir spot giver i like it when you don't get punished for an injury because i feel like the injury is punishment enough if you have to also decide well is it worth getting this guy off my team so i can have an active player instead of him that is even more painful a decision to make I would much prefer anybody who has a player get injured have a safe spot to stash them until they come back. And that's why I prefer to have many IR or IR plus spots available. Now, the downside of this is that once you make a drop and say it's just after the draft and now you have an empty roster spot, you can just load up on injured players and sort of like draft a bunch of free guys to have when they get healthy again. And it's like having dibs on these guys who are injured sort of unfairly. So you drop a guy, you add an injured guy to your roster, you move that injured guy to IR, and then you have an empty roster spot again. So you just repeat over and over until your IR spots are all full. I don't necessarily love that being a possibility. However, you could say it's fair. Like if everybody left these guys alone at the draft or at other times during the year, never saw it fit to drop somebody on their roster to pick up the injured player and have the same opportunity, then maybe it's fair game. Yeah, I guess you could mitigate that problem a little bit by introducing acquisition limits into your pool, which we talked about last week. So if let's say you only had 40 ads for the whole year, then you'd think twice about using like five of them right after the draft to fill up your IR. So that's one way to stop people from doing that. Because I do think that it is kind of unfair that someone can just grab all of the injured guys and have them ready. But at the same time, it's annoying if you don't have enough IR spots. If you only have two, and then like three of your stars get injured, like remember at the end of last season, right? Like Patrick Kane, Tyler Sagan, Henrik Lundqvist, like all these guys were injured. And if you only had two IR spots, like you can't drop one of these players, right? especially if you're in a keeper league and you're planning on keeping them for the next season, that is really unfair. So I agree with you, Brian. It's nice to have a fair amount. I'd say like around four IR spots is a good number. 
And speaking of numbers, why don't we just get into it then? Like, what do you think is the best roster setup in your league? You're designing your own league, which we are. What are we going to do for the Keeping Carlson League? Well, it is about how deep you want your league to be. So if you want it to be a shallow league with a lot of free agents constantly available and, you know, sort of like a coin flip, it's like, well, this guy's gone cold and this generally established NHL player is available in free agency and he's heating up. So I'm just going to make the switch and it's very low cost because there's a lot of good guys available in free agency. So, you know, if you let go one of the guys on the bottom half of your roster, you're not even going to feel it potentially. Whereas in a deeper league, you know, those moves are valued a little bit differently. You're not going to let go of a 55, 60 point guy in pretty much any scenario. And you're going to cycle through probably a bunch of 40, 45 point guys as they catch fire and as they, you know, might look like they're coming up and getting better. So if you're looking for a competitive league, I generally prefer a deeper league. The leagues that I found really good usually have a player pool about 200, 250 players deep. So you can do the math, but in like, say, a 14-team league, that's about 18 players per team, including bench spots. And that is actually exactly what we've decided for the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey League. We're going to have 14 teams in each league. Each team is going to have 18 players, and that means that there will be a player pool about 252 players deep, which is a lot of fun, and there's still going to be some gems in like that 250, 275 range. There's going to be enough free agency fodder worth risking some of the players you drafted for. Yeah, and as far as the actual roster breakdown goes, we've decided to go with two centers, two left wings, two right wings, four defense, two goalies, four bench, and then also a couple of extra sort of more general spots one forward and one utility brian what's the difference between a forward and a utility spot just for those that don't know and why would you not have two forwards or two utilities instead so even in a league where you do have designated roster positions you can still add some flexibility for people to work with so a forward slot lets you do exactly that you can put a center a left wing or a right wing in that slot and that just helps keep the number of people who are on your bench pretty low it lets you try and get as many guys into your active lineup as you can and the utility spot does the same thing except it means you can also have a defenseman in that spot so say you're carrying like five or six defensemen on your team and there's only four defensemen slots you might have a situation where you have like a couple forward slots or like right wing and left wing slots empty but all your defensive slots are full What the utility slot will let you do is lets you put that defenseman who's on your bench, who's playing that night, into action, even if all your four dedicated D slots are filled up. Yeah, and another nice thing about a utility spot is that if you're in a categories league, and let's say some of the categories are more defensive, like blocks, you could decide on a Sunday, you know, the last day of a matchup, whether you want to use the spot to try to get offense for the more offensive categories, or if you want to throw a defenseman in there to try to get more blocks. And Elon, just to rewind a bit, we were talking about goalie spots and how many you want on your roster. And, you know, part of this might be determined by whether or not you want to have a minimum starts rule in your league. And what a minimum starts rule is, is it makes sure that everybody starts their goalie at least a certain number of times. Why should everybody be forced to play their goalie? Well, it's because a lot of the goalie categories are weighted towards one or two great performances like goals against average and save percentage. If you play a goalie on a Monday, they get a shutout, they have a zero goals against, a 1,000 save percentage. What's your motivation to play that goalie again if you just got points in three categories and there's only like one other in which you need to compete? So with minimum goalie starts, it makes sure that nobody can sit on that. If you get lucky or not lucky, like if you have carry price and he does really well in one start, 
you still got to keep starting him or another goalie of yours if you actually want to qualify for winning those categories. And if you fall below the number of minimum starts set by your league, then you actually automatically lose all the goalie categories that you're competing in. So that zero goals against average will not count for anything if you don't meet the minimum start requirement. So hopefully it makes sense why you need to have a minimum number of goalie starts if you want those categories to be somewhat competitive. In terms of picking the number itself, I think it kind of depends on what your goalie categories are. Like in the Keeping Carlson League, we've decided we're going to have three goalie categories, wins, saves, and save percentage. So only one of them, save percentage, is a rate stat as opposed to accounting stats. So with wins and saves, if you want to win those stats, you're going to need to play your goalies anyway. So there's no need to have a minimum for that. It's the save percentage. Like you said, if you get the one shot out on the first day, then you'd be incentivized to sit your goalie. So we've decided to have a small number of minimum starts, two starts, since if you decide you only want to do those two starts, and remember, we're allowing people to have two goalie roster spots. So theoretically, they could have a lot more than two starts. But if they decide they just want the two, we're going to allow it because they're going to be hurting themselves in wins and saves. Yeah, exactly. So we've tried to turn the tables on anybody who's thinking of sitting their goalies. You can do it, but it's going to be at a disadvantage to you in the other category. So if you really just want to lock down that save percentage category, go ahead and throw caution to the wind for the other two. The other thing you want to be careful of when you're figuring out how many minimum goalie starts you want to enforce in your pool is whether or not it's reasonable to think every owner in your league can actually hit that number. So we have 14 team leagues Each guy is probably going to have two goalies at least that play somewhat regularly. But what if, you know, each of their goalies only plays twice that week and one gets injured and one, you know, the backup starts one of the games. We don't want anybody to be disqualified from the goalie categories by chance. And that's why we've went with a lower number of minimum goalie starts in two, but have also, like you said, Elon sort of rejigged the categories so that starting your goalie is actually more advantageous than it is disadvantageous. Okay, and speaking about categories, let's transition a little bit. Last episode, we did talk about a number of categories, and Brian talked about his disdain for some of them, such as penalty minutes and plus minus. There was one other category that we didn't talk about that's very common in a lot of pools, and Brian was like, right away like oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about that. So Brian, I'm going to give you the floor. What do you think about game-winning goals as a category? I hate that category so much. Game-winning goals... Like, even when people reference, oh, this player has X amount of game-winning goals over the course of their career, it just means so little. I can score a goal to put my team up for nothing, and then the other team scores three goals, you know, in the second and third period, but I still get credited with the game-winning goal, even though my goal didn't win the game. Like, it didn't break a tie to put my team ahead. That would be a more valuable thing, except not every team spends equal amounts of the game tied, so you couldn't really make that balance over the entire league. But anyway, game-winning goals, total luck, whether you're assigned them or not. Yes, an overtime winning goal is great and valuable to fantasy, I agree, but not each player has the same opportunity to score those overtime game-winning goals. And to just have plain old game-winning goals which are calculated by the other team's goal total plus one. Whoever scored that goal gets credited with it. Uh, It doesn't make sense. It's not measuring, I don't think, what we're setting out to measure. Totally luck-based, not interested. Right, yeah. So I guess the general idea with game-winning goals, like you were alluding to, is it's sort of like this player scored a clutch goal, and that is valuable in the NHL, right? The player that's able to 
score a goal when the team needs it the most. But the problem is the way it's calculated. Oftentimes these like game winning goals that are counting for fantasy weren't actually clutch goals. And they were like almost the opposite. Like sometimes just a goal to put you ahead a little bit more, which is not exactly the definition of clutch. And Elon, just before we move on, speaking of clutch, there is somebody right now who is doing some work trying to figure out what does clutch mean and how can we like figure out which players in the NHL are truly clutch. It's sort of been an idea that's been batted around for the last few years in the stats community around hockey Twitter, but this is the latest effort in figuring that out. Her name is Carolyn Wilk, and what she's doing is counting how many high-danger scoring chances a player is getting, how many points a player is getting, and how many scoring chances for a player's team is getting, all per 60 minutes, in three types of game states, which are tied, trailing one, trailing two, when you would expect a clutch player to perform. And she's actually posted some of her results over on her website at twobeardedladies.wordpress.com. Last season's top 20 clutch forwards, well, I'll just read you the first few names, Nick Benino, Patrice Bergeron, and Corey Perry top her list of clutch players from last season. Again, twobeardedladies.wordpress.com. Or you can follow her on Twitter over at Classlicity, that's Class L-I-C-I-T-Y, to uh, see where we're at in actually determining whether or not a player is clutch. Interesting that Nick Benino is in the list there, the newly acquired Nick Benino by the Pittsburgh Penguins. We'll see if he'll be clutch for them. Yeah, well, Sean Horkoff is fifth and Vernon Fiddler is seventh, and there are like some inherent problems in using the system she's using, but she describes those in her article too. I'm not going to give you the whole thing. Go read it yourself. (laughs) Okay, a little homework for the listeners. And then since we're talking about categories, one other thing I just wanted to mention is some platforms have some very interesting categories. I'm curious to get your thoughts on them, Brian. So, you know, we talked about hits and blocks and plus minus and goals and assists and all these different categories. Theoretically, you could make a composite category, I guess you could call it, where let's say there's a category in your league called hits plus blocks where you win the category by add up your team's hits and your blocks and the sum of that's going to determine who wins the hits plus blocks category and you could do things like that maybe that's a bit of a silly one since what do hits have to do with blocks maybe it's like defensive play the ones that really jumped out at me are actually the goalie ones because there's this problem actually right now i find in fantasy hockey where a goalie win is a common category Yet now that in the NHL they have the shootouts and going to next season there's going to be three-on-three overtime, there's going to be a lot of goalies who make it to overtime and then lose in overtime or the shootout. And is it really fair that that goalie then contributes nothing to your fantasy league? So I like the idea of having a wins category that's maybe like two points for a win and then one for an overtime loss and one for a shootout loss. Then you add all of that together to give you your sort of points for the goalie wins category. Then that's what you use to decide who wins that category. Yeah, composite categories are something I've just come across recently. I've never played with one myself, but I have seen several leagues where it does happen. And I can be warm to the idea, especially when it comes to goalies, like that one you mentioned, Elon, where a goalie gets points for a win and a shootout or overtime loss, because the shootout and overtime losses are kind of coin flips. And it really is unfortunate if you lose your week because you needed to win the goalie category and, you know, your goalie gave up a goal in the dying seconds of a game and then lost in the coin flip that is the shootout and overtime. And those things aren't necessarily skill-based. With 3-on-3 OT, it's going to become even more of like a chancy category. So I like the fact that you might be able to still give points as you do in the NHL, to a goalie who made it out of regulation without losing, but without devaluing the actual win in regulation itself either. 
Yeah, and I guess you could even take it further. Like for our Keeping Carlson League, we decided in the end against having shutouts. And the main reason why we decided against it was was we just didn't want to have to add that extra goalie category because then that would lead us to having to add more skater categories to balance it out. Because we talked about last week how you don't want to have a disproportionate number of goalie categories compared to skater categories when goalies only make up a really small percentage of your roster. And there's also the problem that shutouts are kind of rare and so that category is usually tied. But now, theoretically, you could have your goalie wins category be, you know, two points for a win, and then one for an overtime loss, one for a shootout loss, and then one for a shutout. So you still get that little incentive of cheering for a shutout because you'll get one more point in your goalie wins category. So it seems also like these composite categories are a nice way to include some of these rarer events without having to add a whole category for them. Like, I think for a skater, for example, like a hat trick is very exciting. It doesn't happen very often. Maybe you could add an extra something to one of the categories. I haven't actually thought this through yet. But, you know, theoretically, you could have hat tricks plus goals for the goals category. Or, you know, something like that just to give some value to the more rare events. I think it's something worth looking into. And I'd be interested to hear from the listeners. Tweeted us at Keeping Carlson if you've used any interesting composite categories. And I'd like to hear how they've worked out for you. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of rare things. Like you said, Elon hat tricks and shootouts that you might not want to let carry an entire category, but you would still like them to be counted. Composite categories are a good way to roll them all together. And if your platform allows it, it's not a bad thing to consider when designing your pool. Okay, and now I'd like to actually switch to something completely different than scoring and categories and rosters and everything like that. I don't want to talk about a specific fantasy hockey league rule, but I just want to talk about a general problem that occurs in all of fantasy hockey, and that's dealing with inactive owners. And we've all been there, you know, at the draft, everyone in your league, let's say you have a 12-team league, everyone's gung-ho, excited, they draft their teams, but then things happen during the season. You have some people who just get busy or some people that are losing, so they decide they don't care anymore. And unfortunately, in a lot of league formats, this kind of hurts the whole league. Like if you're in a head-to-head league and there's one owner that's not even setting his roster, that's basically a free win for whoever plays that team and then also you know there's their roster you can't trade with them and you know maybe they have some players that come off the IR but they don't end up dropping someone back into free agency it could get really annoying and Brian I just wanted to have a quick discussion about I guess how we want to define an inactive owner and how you'd suggest dealing with that problem so of course you know you've got to exercise a little bit of discretion in figuring out whether or not an owner is inactive when to take action but a general guideline I think is well some platforms let you check when an owner last logged in or took an action for their team. And if you're into December and they haven't been there since the last week of October, well, I think that's a pretty clear-cut case of inactivity. You can also try and identify an inactive roster owner by seeing, well, who's at the bottom of the pool, who's having a really tough time, and is sitting a lot of active players with open roster spots night after night. That's probably a pretty good sign that they're not around or not paying attention. And, you know, that really hurts the entire pool because you've got teams getting easy wins against these teams that have inactive owners. And, you know, it's not always equal how many times each team plays one another. So if one team gets to play an inactive team more often than another team, they have an advantage that they probably shouldn't have. It also takes out some of the competition in free agency and trading. There's a lot less player movement and there's more players available, possibly, than there should be, or there are just a lot of guys wasting away on somebody's roster that should have been dropped a long time ago and sort of recycled through the free agency mill. 
So in terms of dealing with inactive owners, I guess you could think there's sort of like a protocol you should follow. Like obviously email the person, make sure that they actually still want to be in the league. If it turns out that they just don't want to participate anymore or they're ignoring you, I guess the best outcome is if you could just find someone new to replace that owner. And that's what we're hoping to do in the Keeping Carlson League. So if someone drops out or isn't active anymore and they confirm they don't want to play, we're thinking we'll just have kind of like a wait list of people who could come in and take their spot. If you can't find someone else, though, Brian... Is there anything else you can do to deal with this problem of this inactive owner? Unfortunately, there might not really be a whole lot that you can do to really minimize the damage done by an inactive owner in the season itself. Other than, you know, not invite them back for next season, you could probably also lock their rosters. That would be a safe thing to do. So that if they do want to come back at some point, well, they have to go through the commissioner first. And then you can also figure out, well, does the timing of it make sense for them to come back now and maybe compete in like the last month of the season and give the teams that they're against a harder time than all the other teams had before them. Locking their roster also prevents them from really going nuts and just dropping a bunch of players left and right and flooding the free agent market. You know, maybe they're upset about something or whatever. That that does happen occasionally in fantasy leagues. But maybe the wiser thing to do would be to incentivize your pool participants to compete the full year and really give them a reason even if their team is no good to keep going and to keep trying every week because it can be a little discouraging and dispiriting to go in week after week with a team that you drafted really terribly or you caught a couple bad breaks and just losing all the time. I can understand why some people don't want to dedicate a bunch of time and effort to setting up a fantasy team that's just going to keep losing over and over. So then what do you have in mind, Brian? Like, what can you do to incentivize a team to try after they've already been eliminated from contention of making the playoffs? And there's really no reason for them to continue participating. Right, or continue to hang on to their good players. And in a redraft league, that really hurts when that team at the bottom says, well, I'm out, I'm finished for the season, trades away all their top players in whatever trades for draft picks even. You know, it doesn't always feel so great if you're a team that's still in the hunt. So what can you do? Well, maybe once a team gets eliminated... And I think that's been batted around for the NHL draft that I think I've put forward a couple times on the show is that once a team is mathematically eliminated from playoff contention, they begin to accumulate points that go towards a separate standings that determine draft order for the next season. So if you're the first team out of contention in a season, then you get the most time possible to accumulate points towards that first overall draft pick which you're going to need because your team was bad enough that you were the first team eliminated. So what this does is it really encourages people to keep building their team, keep valuable players on their team, and keep competing and stay active all the way to the end of the season. It's a bit of manual work if you're the commissioner of such a league. You can also do it so that there's a consolation bracket. Say the bottom six teams go head-to-head at the end of the season, and the winner of that mini-tournament gets the first overall draft pick, which would also incentivize, you know, getting a high seed for that little tournament and having players remaining on your team that will help you win and get that best draft pick to set you up for the next season. Yeah, that sounds like a good way to incentivize people to still try. Maybe it's not 100% fair because if your team actually is the worst, then you're going to not only have the worst team, but you'll also have the worst chance of getting a draft pick because you'll just never win anyways. So you won't win any of these like final end of the season tournaments to try to earn yourself that first draft pick. But That's, again, kind of like gamesmanship versus fun. Maybe it's not completely fair, but I think it makes the league more fun overall because everyone is still trying to be competitive all the way through. 
And that's actually going to do it for this week's episode. Like I said, it was just a kind of a little bonus episode to cover the things that we didn't cover last week. Hopefully together we've covered all of the topics that are involved in designing a fantasy hockey league. There still are some more advanced things you could do. Like we didn't get into like salary cap leagues or dynasty leagues so, so much. But as far as the general stuff, I think we've covered it all. If we haven't, let us know. Keeping Carlson on Twitter. If there's something obvious, we could always throw it into our next episode, which will be next week. We'll be back with a regular full-length episode, and we've got a big one for next week. We're going to talk about which players have moved into elite status that weren't there before, and the opposite, which players who were in the elite category maybe have jumped out of there, and this could help in deciding who to draft next season, who's maybe overrated, who's underrated. We did an episode like this last season, if you want to go and check and see what we got right and what we got wrong. It was called Sure Shots and Probably Nots. It should be fun, Brian. I'm looking forward to it. But as far as this week goes, thanks as always for listening. Follow us on Twitter. If you could give us a five-star review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Brian said at the top of the show, if you want to sign up to be a patron, you will be able to join our pool and also get all the other perks. You can check that out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. With that, I'm going to cue up the outro music. And I'm just realizing now, Brian, there's probably no credits again. Yeah, no, just us and our patrons who have had a ton of great points over on the Facebook group since last episode aired. A lot of good questions about what we talked about and a lot of good questions about what we didn't talk about that helped us shape this show. So thank you to our patrons as always. Okay, great job, Brian. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on elite players next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl San.